So we're going to be looking at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, the last few verses of the book. And it's verses 10 through 14. And if you're not aware of where that is, go ahead and look in the table of contents of, of the Bibles that we handed out. So I think most of you here probably may have missed some of the Sunday messages on the book of First Peter, or this is your first time here, welcome, um, and have not heard any messages on the book of First Peter. So I thought it would be important to do a summation of the letter to you today before we get into that. However, general speak, uh, speakers in general are notoriously terrible for doing a brief summation. So to spare you any pain, we're going to watch an eight-minute Bible project video on First Peter for that summation before we go over the end of the letter today. So let's, let's pay attention to that. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the Twelve Disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learned that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey, and Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles. But here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns 
cleans away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust, but violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus's love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers. But in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. 
which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence, and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. Isn't that great? Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the Bible Project, but you can watch, I think they probably have about 80 different videos right now on YouTube. Uh, So it's a great way to do an overview of different books of the Bible, but also uh, very important topics. So I would encourage you. And if you've missed any of the messages, would like to go back, you can go to our website where we have all those messages downloaded. So all right, so let's go ahead and look at First uh, Peter five ten through fourteen. Let's go ahead and get that slide up if we've got it, and let's read that. And let's go ahead and stand one more time <laughs> as we read God's word together. And Peter says, "By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you." exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This morning, as we stand in honor of you and your word and what you speak through men and women, in Scripture, we need our hearts to be energized by the power of your voice and what you've recorded. So as we stand here and you're in the midst of us, moving among us, uh, we pray that we have ears that are open, a mind of understanding, and a heart wanting to follow you as you speak to us. In the name of Jesus this morning. Father, amen. You can be seated. Just a, quote, brief summation of the verses we just read. (laughs) It's interesting, as he said, I wrote briefly to you, and you think, that's a lot of stuff for a roll of scroll. Um, It's a polite way in that culture to end a letter. 
even if it wasn't brief. <laughs> it's kind of like messages. They can be sort of talked about brief, but they're really not. Um, he mentions Silvanus and Mark being with him. He is uh, speak, writing this letter from Rome, whom he uh, uses a code word, Babylon, which uh, the YouTube video mentioned as an archetype of a nation or area of influence that is corrupt. And it's a corrupt world system of leadership that cannot and will not submit to the higher authority of God and his rulership. It embraces, the culture embraces the deification of humankind and the freedom of any and all desires to be lived out without restraint. That's a brief summation of that. And he ends that letter with standing firm in the true grace of God and says, Shalom, peace to you who are in Christ. So this morning, because of time restraints and because we had some time to consider 9-11 and give thanks for our first responders, I'm going to highlight two aspects of these concluding words of Peter And I'm going to go rather quickly through a number of verses, and I'm hoping that you'll go back and dive deeper into some of the thoughts later on. But let's look at the the next slide to highlight where we're going to go with this this morning. So there's two gifts that Peter mentions here that produce peace in our lives in Christ. Uh, Number one, the family who are partners in our journey through life. And secondly, the phrase Peter uses, true grace. And hopefully in this morning, we're going to realize the anchors that keep us firm in his favor. It's important to note that we are to be givers and receivers of different gifts that God gives, and the graces from one another as we walk in this pathway with Jesus. And it's an important component of our growth without others, and without others to give and to receive will only stagnate and stop growing. So let's look at that slide. Partners in personal discipleship. This is part one of looking at the family and how important partners are in our personal discipleship. As I said, alone we stagnate and stop growing. It's how God's designed us as believers. He uses a lot of illustrations in scriptures about the church, those who follow Christ as disciples. One of the things that Scripture uses a lot is that we're members of one body with Christ being the head that directs all the members. Just like uh, the members of our body, some are visible and others are hidden. But all are important to the correct function of life. Think about that. Let's look at that next slide. This is a Did I miss something here? I probably did. All right. As being members of a body, um, I want you to consider something um, with this. 
is the importance of one another. Before we go on, there are probably 40 phrases in the New Testament that use the term one another and how important that is. I've just given a few up here to consider and think about because in our society, we are trained to be very insular and separate with different media options, with the pressures of life. If you, if you do have children, you understand the pressures of that, being a husband and or a wife. Or if you're a single parent, that's even more. And if you're single, just being able to, let's say, do schooling, more training, and doing a job, and being able to pay your bills. That leads to, I just don't want to be around anybody. <laughs> I've got to take care of my business and the things I need to do, and I'm burned out. I just want to sit and vegetate or do something else to be alone. However, as we go further into this message and we look at the grace of God, we need to understand that God has connected us to one another by the Spirit that resides in you as believers in Jesus. It's called the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. And so with that, we are coming into the order that God has created, which is that we are connected to one another, vitally and invisibly and yet importantly. So let's look at a couple of these verses here. In Romans 12, Paul uses this term, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. In Colossians 3, Paul says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and make allowance for each other's faults. Notice he says, bear with each other. It doesn't mean be a bear with each other. Okay, That's a cheesy dad joke, and I am allowed one of those within each message I do. But he says the ability to forgive one another if you have a grievance against someone. And forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Making allowance for each other's faults or failures. For those of you that are perfect, that may be a hard verse to do. James 5, which uh, we're, uh, Pastor Brian's going to be doing for the men. We're going to be going through James. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, would you say that's a pretty intimate act to do that? It's a very hard verse to practice because of isolation and not understanding the depth of relationship we have in Christ with each other. However, it's a goal to move towards. And finally, the last verse in Hebrews 3, you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So the responsibility towards one another is that we're watching out for one another. And if we see each other drifting into a dangerous place, we warn them. And we receive warnings for our lives. Again, a difficult concept to practice within our current society, right? Don't judge me. How many times have you heard that ridiculous statement? I understand don't condemn me, (laughs) but let's be honest. 
We all have to make judgments about things for our way of life or what we're going to do with our children, right? So I'm not going to go too deep on that. So let's look at the next slide. And notice what Paul says. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less than honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. And while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, Paul brings up a couple of points that I, I think are important. The visible and invisible parts of the body. In our superstar society, and the striving after being recognized is a huge thing in our culture right now. And yet, in God's system, in his economy as believers, we are to honor whether our part's visible or not. Think of your own body. We work hard on our bodies, some of us do, <laughs> to be limber, muscular, athletic, or just to get the pot belly out of the way. For instance, now I know my friend over there who works out and looks like he works out. Amazing. I'm not going to point him out, but he's in that black shirt sitting over there <laughs> next to his wife. <laughs> but how many of you are familiar with the pituitary gland in your body? Raise your hands if you are. All right, pretty good, pretty good. It's a very, very small gland. It's very invisible. You don't see it. But if your pituitary gland does not function well, in fact, I'll read this so I don't get off track here. The main function of your pituitary gland is to produce and release several hormones that help carry out important bodily functions, including growth. <laughs> so if that isn't functioning... Your hormones are out of whack, other things go wrong, and you don't grow. So no matter how good you look on the outside, you're not going to be able to function very well. And so in God's economy, what he's saying here is that the invisible parts are just as important as the visible. And without the invisible, the visible don't work very well. That's what he's trying to say. I know that sounds really simplistic, but... We need to change our thinking. As we read these descriptions of how the body works, God gives equal importance to each member whether they, quote, appear weaker or not as honorable. Is that distinctly different from how culture is viewed? That's how we need to stand out and follow that same heart and mind. It's so crucial, so critical. 
in his kingdom, we take care of those less honorable, quote, members. <laughs> that is the heart of Jesus. It appears to be less honorable. Sometimes in our health and in our wellness, we think that is the status of normality and that there's a superiority over those who may be deficient in some area, whether mental, physical, or emotional. Now, none of us would admit that, so I'll admit it for myself. I mean, and I'm not anything great, not a great specimen bodily or whatever, but I certainly feel I'm glad I don't have to deal with that, and so I want to help you, da-da-da. That's a pride issue. And I admit that freely. However, in God's economy, those that appear weaker or less honorable are just as important as us to Christ and to the Father. That means we are to have care so that there is no division within the body of Christ. Does that make sense? How many... How many pastors, senior pastors, have you seen in a wheelchair? Maybe, maybe there's one or two out there. That speaks a lot to me about how we view visible people and that we don't appear weak or needy. Think on that a bit. Let's look at the next slide. Peter, who wrote this book, was well acquainted with the story that Jesus told. So let's read it together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But he, the lawyer, deserving to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Now, a priest, in our mind, means a Catholic priest. But in that time, a priest was the highest point of the religious system, and they were a go-between God and the people. So likewise, a Levite, who happens to be a temple assistant and does certain things within the temple to assist God's people, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, and a Samaritan would be a minority race that is despised. I'll just sum it up real quickly. In that time frame, that's what a Samaritan was. They were despised as a minority by the Jews. And as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, this man, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set on 
set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus turns around and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. How much time and energy and money do you think the Samaritan had to expend to get this guy well and ready and to the end? Just think about it. They didn't have cars. They didn't have jets. No rescue helicopters. How much time do you think was spent on this one man? Big expenditure, huh, when you think about this. Huge expenditure. We think we're good if we send some money to a GoFundMe and we move on. Now, I'm, I'm not denigrating that, understand. However, this is the story and this is the need. Sometimes we're the man who's robbed, beaten up, and left for dead, right? (laughs) And we need that kind of care desperately. Sometimes we don't know how to ask for it. Sometimes we're too proud to receive it, but we need it. And sometimes we become the giver of that care. Either way, when we practice care for an individual like this or humble ourselves to receive care, from someone else as an individual, then we're taking care of the whole of his people, which is the idea that Paul is bringing across in 1 Corinthians in this passage. All right. A lot to think about, but I hope we we think about this and meditate on it. All right. Let's look at the next need of partners in our mission to share, and that's the next slide. The family Partners in our mission to share the gospel. It embodies, it's an embodiment of the good news of Jesus coming into the world. We embody that. That is our mission. Peter would have been very familiar with this next slide because it was the last command that Jesus gave to his disciples and including Peter before Jesus ascended back to heaven. Let's read that next slide. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, which we'll touch on in a little bit. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he brackets, Jesus brackets, I have all authority. Remember that song we sang a few minutes ago. By his authority, we have authority. And then he ends it, I'm going to be with you to the ends of the age. Do you think this command that we hear from Jesus was just for his immediate followers? Or do you think this is a command for all of his disciples throughout all the centuries? Think about it. Not asking, you know, just asking you to think about it. What do you think? So, 
As in this last few verses in 1 Peter, we read Peter discussing the importance of Silas and Mark for his work with him in Rome. And most of the letters that we read in the New Testament, there's personal appreciation for many of the co-workers who labored alongside the writers of the New Testament, and their stories spread the gospel of Jesus throughout the world at that time. It's important to understand this as we read about these co-workers, including Peter, and their mission to share the gospel throughout the known world at the time. Most of the people mentioned in these passages were married. Many of them had children while they co-labored in bringing the message of Jesus to the villages and cities around them or in just far-flung areas of the known world at that time, including Peter. Peter was married. His wife went with him on some of these journeys. Think about that. You who are married and have children. Could you imagine yourselves just tramping along by camel, by donkey, walking to village or cities that you don't even know about and just doing that? I know what my wife would say. You go, honey. I'll be back here praying for you. (laughs) What did they have to give up for Jesus' interest and desire to save all? That's pretty powerful. Let's look at the next slide. And we're going to look at one verse out of Philippians, which Paul wrote, and see what he has to say about these compatriots. And this included women, by the way. Phoebe is mentioned. There's a number of women who were co-laborers in this, not just guys. Equal opportunity. Remember the equal in the body of Christ? Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you very soon. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Ah, that hits me. But I think it necessary, further down in this letter, he says, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. Wow. The balance between the importance of family, that God speaks to us as men and women who are married, or you as singles, and whether we're all commanded to make disciples, what does that mean for our lives right now, where we're at? There is no problem having self-interest for your, for the things that you're responsible for, your jobs, going to school, if you're married, family, all of that is true. But somehow, in a tough environment that these men and women 
who co-labored with the writers of the New Testament, there was a greater mission that was upon them, and that's why we need each other to encourage each other on this. That's why we need to be inspired by fellow brethren that share in these labors of messaging. And and, and, and I'm not saying, okay, honey, we're going to go to um, Australia to the Aborigines and we're leaving tomorrow. Don't, don't misunderstand what's being shared here. Understand this, that... You have a mission field all around you. Your neighbors, your co-workers. The list goes on. We can encourage one another to do those things and to be inspired by the love of Christ in us to move forward. Whether we're single, married, lots of children, no children, doesn't matter. What is God saying to us as individuals? What are we hearing and being encouraged by each other in this process? That has to be something that we work out. I'm not going to give you a lot of answers here. I'm giving you a lot of questions. And really, when you hear all of these things up to this point, it seems so unattainable beyond ourselves. And it's true that it is beyond ourselves. (laughs) That's a good thing to recognize that this is beyond ourselves. But he is able to do in us what we're unable to do on our own that brings us to the necessity of focusing on the second highlight of these closing comments that Peter does. It's God's gift of experiencing his grace. Let's read the next slide, and we're going to move quickly because I know we're running out of time. The anchors that Peter mentions, standing firm in this true grace. Faith that works through love. This whole letter of Peter is the example of what it means that faith works through love. The grace received, the knowledge of Jesus that happens here, that God, through his grace and people receiving that, are working powerfully within these disciples who had to live in a hostile society where they suffered and died for their faith, and at the same time, living out jobs, marriages, and family within that culture. That was hostile to them. Peter taught them what it meant to yield first to Jesus Christ as Lord as they grew in the knowledge of who he was and secondly, how to live out that faith with love to the systems and people around them. So go over the letter again. See the true grace of God being demonstrated. That's an anchor to be able to keep firm in this true grace and understand how to mimic and to go forward with that. True grace was seen by the members of the communities around these believers as they saw real faith working through love through the disciples and they saw the good works that were accomplished by these Christians. Okay, let's look at another aspect of true grace in the next slide. second anchor to stand firm in true grace is obedience. And obedience is the action that follows God's grace accepted. I'm not going to go through the next slide for time's sake. 
However, I'm going to get it up on the screen. I want you to look at it while I'm moving forward. Counterfeit grace. I want you to read it, think about it. I don't have the time to go through this. But it's important that we understand false grace as opposed to true grace. In the next slide, another writer of many of the New Testament books who I've mentioned already is Paul, writing to a young pastor of a group of Christians, describes in this verse what true grace looks like within the society of these believers and what they lived in. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A disciple, a disciple slash servant life of obedience to the shepherd of our souls is crucial to be firmly fixed in the true grace of God. Just look at the next slide as we're finishing. How many times have you heard the wonderful words of grace, faith, love? We love those words. Do you know how often the word of obedience is coupled to those dynamics of who God is and what he gives? More often than you might think. It might be important that you actually go and read this, but I gave some examples. Through him, we received grace to call all the Gentiles, and this is Paul speaking of his commissioning. Through him, Jesus, we, our team, received grace to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Let's look at grace. Peter, and this is one of the first verses in the book he writes here, Peter, to the elect who are exiles, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in abundance. Obedience, then grace and peace poured out. And finally, our Lord. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Now, that's just three of probably 50. Love, faith, and grace is lived out by the fruit of obedience. True love, true faith, true grace produces obedience, and it's a fruit of recognizing his love, his faithfulness, and his true grace poured out on us. It is indeed the action of grace received. All right. What do we have? 1046. The last verse talks about peace in Christ. If we take anything from these, these past verses, if we think about it and let the Spirit of God work in us, and we are obedient to what he's saying to us. We are going to be filled with peace, even though sometimes circumstances, 
or what we see is absolutely in chaos. And we're the man beaten (laughs) and left for dead. Because Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, my peace I give to you. That is in the person of Jesus himself, our Lord, who dwells in us and comes upon us. So, shalom to you. Shalom. Let's do one last exercise. He's here among us, so I want you to think of some burden that you're carrying, some responsibility that's weighing you down, some situation that is overcoming you. And just for sake, close your eyes. And I want you to cast, using Peter's words, cast that care upon him because he cares for you. I just want you to give it to him, throw it on him. So as you've done this, don't take it back. Do what you need to be to be responsible, but let the rest be carried by him and maybe those around you. So shalom to you. Shalom, peace to you in Christ Jesus.